In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Her name is Candace Benbow. And she moved from the South to New York City. And like most people that live in New York City, she lives in an apartment with thin walls and narrow corridors. And in a place like that, you get neighbors that you never met before, that you never know, that you never see, because you travel in different times of the day and different times of the night. Well, she had a neighbor across the hallway that liked to play loud music and late into the night. And last December, this neighbor was playing loud music at 3.15 in the morning. Well, Candace, at some point, didn't know what to do, but sure wish he would stop and wondered how she might respond. So at 3.30 in the morning, she typed up a letter. And she did something else. And in her letter, she wrote this at 4 o'clock in the morning at New York City with a neighbor across the hall playing loud music. Hey, I hope you're well. We haven't formally met. I, I hate we're doing so under these circumstances. But when you come home every evening and blast music, um, I've come to expect it. Sometimes it's a song I hadn't heard in a while, and I appreciate the throwback. Other times it's something I've never heard before, and I've been able to Google a few lyrics and add it to my weekly playlist. So to be fair, you've helped me to catch a vibe. But last night, fam, you tried it. You really, really did. I don't know if you were hosting the official after party for our building's holiday social or single-handedly determining this generation's R&B king, but 3 a.m. is just too late to be that loud. At 326... I couldn't tell if you were playing some up-tempo hit from the weekend or you pushed shuffle on some house techno. Either way, I could have done without that part of the set because at 347, I realized it was much more advantageous to reflect on your musical taste and eat potato chips than try to sleep. You really love a piano solo and some soulful drums. At 355, I should be dreaming. But at 407, you settled down, and I really appreciated that. In the future... As you're hosting your kickbacks and come-throughs, please remember the rest of us. And as a peace offering, I hope you will enjoy this pound cake. Because at 3.30, when I decided to bake it for you, I realized I was taking your feelings into much more consideration than you were taking mine. I hope that changes. Especially since I'm only three months into a 13-month lease. Happy holidays. (laughs) That was December 15th. December 18th, she gets a knock at the door. It's her neighbor. And he has three things to say to her. I'm sorry. Would you come to my next party? And that pound cake was awesome. (laughs) And his name was Tommy. And they took a selfie. And you can read the whole thread on Twitter on our ministry resources page when you look at it tomorrow. This is for real. This wasn't no story. Script doesn't usually unfold like that, does it? It usually goes very differently. A lot of disregard is met with disregard. A lot of unkindness is met with unkindness that even gets ramped up higher. And maybe it comes to something worse than just screaming through a wall or banging on a door. It just doesn't usually happen like that. Maybe you felt it. It's a thrill to be angry especially when somebody is mistreating you. And in the moment, you know what it feels like to mistreat those who are mistreating you? It feels so good. 
It feels so good, it might even feel just a little bit right. And so we hear that story, and we think of our own experiences, whether we reflected Candace's way or the opposite way. And then we come across, it just so happens, what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount, in where we are in the series about the highest good. It just so happens he has something to say to us that is perhaps the hardest word he said and the most unsettling thing you'll hear in the entirety of his sermon. But what's wonderful about hearing something unsettling and hard is that we get to hear it on the night that we remember how he, like at no other time in his ministry, had to practice what he preached. And what we're going to hear him say is what he lays on us. And yet for us to hear what he had to say, we have to hear it through what he did. Anything that he might ask of us, we always, always have to hear it in view of what we receive from him. And so we will, right now, from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. We haven't stood yet. I wonder if you're able, if you would stand to hear what he had to say. Matthew 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. On the just and on the unjust, he sends rain. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We cannot hear what he said unless you know what he did. What does he ask of us? What is this assignment that he has given to us if we would walk in his way? It would be this. But to take everything that you have heard from God and consider everything that you have felt by simply being human, take all of that into consideration and yet still lean in to Jesus. He quotes what they know. You have heard that it was said, love your enemies Love your neighbors and hate your enemy. And we hear that and we think, now the love your neighbor we've heard, that's in Leviticus 19, but hate your enemy, where have we heard that? We haven't actually. You'll find no text that recommends hating your enemy. Oh, you will hear the words of Scripture and the psalmist say unequivocally, I despise those who despise you, O Lord. But you will hear no recommendation to that. 
And yet when you consider what it is to love your neighbor, to delight in their friendliness, to, to enjoy their kindness and to revel in what is between you because they are neighbor and they're acting in the words we mean by neighborly, then there is this little thing that maybe goes off in your brain that thinks, well, gosh, if I love that so much and delight in those who are my neighbor, then maybe if someone is mistreating you, maybe I should follow that first inclination to want to mistreat them back because isn't it true? Isn't it the first thing we feel, the first thing we think when someone has wronged us is to return the wrongness in kind. Jesus would say to us, I know you've heard that. I know you felt that, and it felt so right in the moment. But listen to me. You've heard that said. You felt that feeling. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is as bewildering a thing for us to hear him say as what he said last Sunday when we heard him say, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other one as well. He is saying unto us, love the ones who are your enemies, who are treating you as one who means you no good. Let's be clear what he is not saying in that instruction. He is not saying, pretend that they are not acting Toward you as an enemy. Do not lie to yourself and say that the harm that they are doing to you is not harm. He is not saying, put on a brave face and smile back at them, trying to tell yourself that it doesn't really hurt the way they're treating you. He is not saying that. He is saying, meet their hostility with goodness. Meet the harm that they might say of you or want to do to you with kindness. And as soon as we hear that, we think, do you know what, they're fe- what I'm feeling as a consequence of their work? Do you realize how monstrous they act unto me? What would it mean for to love someone who is being monstrous to me? In the moment, your love for an enemy like that might only mean you restrain yourself from doing what you might otherwise do. It is not to put on a brave face. But neither is it to take revenge. Kids, you know what this means for you? It means when somebody at school or somebody on your roof starts treating you horribly, you know what Jesus is saying? You must surprise them by acting kindly. What? They mean you no good. They take from you everything that you want and you want to have justice right then and there. He's saying, oh, surprise them with their horrible acting. Ask, surprise them with kindness. You know what he's saying to you, spouses? When the one who looked you in the eye one day at an altar and said, I'm going to love you like no other, in sickness and in health till death do his part, and they start acting to you like they have retractable horns on their head, you treat them with kindness. You don't wrap up, ramp up the ugliness with more ugliness. In every instance in which we are treated with that kind of unkindness, it is not to return with them with a smile. But it is to seek their good. Not that they would persist in their harm. But that you would do better unto them than they're doing poorly unto you. That's his instruction. And that is as unnatural a feeling as we might imagine. And that is why he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those aren't two separate things. Praying for those who persecute you might mean the very first halting step towards loving your enemy.
Because it's in prayer that you are searching for a few stammering words that you might only get out with your teeth bared. And to even pray for their good. That's his instruction. That's his unnatural instruction. And we ask ourselves, why? Why go in that way? Why meet harm and unkindness with constructive prayer and even seeking their good and their welfare? Why? Because there is no knowing like there is in the doing. Back in the day, when a son and his father would plow a field, it was one thing for a son to watch his father plow that field, but it was quite another thing for that son to put himself to the plow himself. To know what it was for his father to walk in that way, to furrow the ground, to plant the seed, to cultivate in all ways. It was one thing to see what he did. It was another thing to walk in his way and to do is what he did. Jesus is saying it is one thing to hear sermons about loving your enemies. It's quite another thing to actually practice it. We dug our garden last month. We dropped in seed and radishes, and lettuce, and plants, and all manner of things that might grow. And it's only in the doing that we come to understand what it is to garden. This is the way that the Lord works. This is the way he acts, and he acts has acted in that way for all time. It said of the Lord that he makes his sun to rise on the good and on the evil. He makes his rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. It is one thing to recognize that the sunrises that fell upon the Swiss Alps are the same sunrises that fell upon Auschwitz. That the rains that would fall upon the field of a Kansas farmer are the same rains that would fall on the Khmer Rouge and the killing fields in Cambodia. The way God is in his mystery is to bring goodness even to those who from our vantage point don't deserve another breath. He knows what it is to act in that way, and it is what it sets him apart. It is what sets him apart from anyone else that we know, that he would be lavish and generous even with those who don't deserve it. And to walk in his way, to know as he does, is to set ourselves apart too. Not to show people that we are better, not to cultivate a superiority complex in us, but to show the world that we live by a different story. That we belong to a different way. Ten years ago, you may remember the story of the Amish community in Pennsylvania. A man walked into their community and took the lives of ten of their own people. And what did that community do? It gathered itself, it prayed, and rather than isolate itself or keep it a distance from the family who had brought such terror to their community, it went to the wife of the one who had killed their people and attended to her welfare and raised money to pay for the funeral of her husband who took his own life in the wake of that shooting. Why? Why? For the deepest and hardest reason that Jesus gives to us about why we walk in this instruction, it is a word we do not want to hear, but it is a word he says nonetheless. He would say unto us that the deepest reason why we would love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you is this, 
that you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And as soon as I hear that phrase, I wince in my soul. Surely he doesn't mean it. Who of us is perfect? Who of us can be? Who of us has demonstrated that kind of love or perfection in the way we've loved our enemy? None of us has. So why is he saying it if he knows that we can't do it? You have to consider what that word perfect means. In the Greek, it's the word teleon. And though it's still appropriate to translate it as the word perfect, it's a perfection in the sense of that which has reached full maturity, that which has become full grown, that which is complete and finished in its intention and its design. And so I've told you, we planted our garden last month. And that which we buried in the ground is now sprouted. And hopefully in good time, that which is sprouted will fruit and blossom. It will reach its fullness. And when it does so, it has reached that perfection. It has demonstrated the intention behind its nature, the intention behind its cultivation. That's the perfection of which Jesus speaks. The love that loves even an enemy is a love that has finally blossomed in what God has intended. George MacDonald was a Scottish pastor of the 19th century. He was the most influential theologian on C.S. Lewis. George MacDonald's son, Ronald, was the dean of the Ravenscroft School up in Asheville back in the 1890s. But George MacDonald said this of the Lord. The Lord is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. And he meant it in this sense. He put it this way in terms of the way a father loves his child. What father is not pleased with the first tottering attempt of his little one to walk? How many of us who had children or have seen children take their first steps, we would, yes, yes, exactly, you're finally getting it. But then he also says, what father would be satisfied with anything but the manly step of the full-grown son? Who of us who saw our children take that first halting step would not be even that much more delighted to see those halting steps become sturdy. In both instances, love is supreme. Love surrounds. Love delights. Love compels. This is the love that seeks to see the full blossoming of our own. And even as we hear that, Is there not still a part of us that perhaps cringes in our soul to think that that's what he's asking of us? That's why we always have to understand what must be behind that which compels us to love even our enemy. Because if we do not hear him through through the lens of what he has done for us, then you know what the words, you must be perfect, will sound like? They will sound like every taskmaster and every parent who asked you to do something that you feared to fail and probably often did. The motive that must be behind us must be words that we hear in love. Dorothy Sayers said this of the Lord. God made humanity from the beginning in weakness, in limitation, in suffering, and subject to sorrows. But at least God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine.
And he surely did. In Jesus coming in human flesh, subjected to all manner of limitation as a child, he entered into our limitation and took his own medicine. But surely on this night that we remember in his passion, what did he do? He loved his enemies. And before his father, he said, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. Arthur Brooks is an author. He's a sociologist. And three weeks ago, up in D.C., he published a book entitled, For Real, Love Your Enemies. We didn't coordinate. Love your enemies. How decent people can save a culture of contempt. He says what we already have heard and probably are so convinced of that we don't think about it anymore. People are no longer just disagreeing with one another. They're despising one another. And they love it because they can do that from the comforts of their smartphone. What is his recommendation? What is his solution? To remember what it felt like to be kind to someone who was unkind to you. To practice warm-heartedness, as he said. To remember that attitude follows action. That sometimes you have to do the right thing before you feel it. And he says, don't debate less, just debate better. In all of those recommendations, they come off to us and they sound, that sounds like wisdom. But friends, what if the desire to get back at somebody felt better than whatever warm-heartedness you felt about being kind to someone that wasn't kind to you? What if there's a greater thrill in trying to prove somebody that they're wrong and making them feel bad that they're wrong What if that feeling is bigger than your desire just to debate better? What will allow us to love our enemies if wisdom alone can't compel us? I will tell you, it is what we're remembering this night. It says in Romans, even while we were enemies, Christ reconciled us to God by his blood. And in so doing, he forgave and reconciled and allowed us to belong to the Lord without fear because now there is in him no condemnation. That is what compels us to even think that it is possible that we might love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us because isn't it true? Isn't it that we have to see it as those who might not chafe against the possibility of loving our enemies only by seeing what he has done for us, that we might ever long to walk in that mature love that comes for us, that shows us that he is good and that his love is everlasting. It's only when we see what he has done for us that you and I will feel compelled to walk in that way because at that point we are convinced of a greater love. Because at that point, we will no longer have a greater interest in revenge and instead take heart in what has been done on our behalf. And at that point, we will know what it has been to have been shown grace, even amidst estrangement. The hardest thing that you and I might ever have to do is what Jesus asks of us in the text.
And more likely than not, it will come in a circumstance far greater than you having just to bake a cake and write a letter. But in those moments, when you are faced with what feels a very unnatural task, you will have one who will give you a knowing glance and who by his spirit will put his hand out to you and say, I get this. And will look upon you with an eye of sympathy and he will have the scars to prove it. By what he did and by what he gives in the power of his spirit, perhaps we will have the strength to walk in that love that is in full blossom. And in that we'll be blessed.